so what did you get up to today? Well, uh, I went to the vet with the dog to get her bum squeezed out. Amazing, me too. I had my dog's anal glands expressed. What are the chances that two people have had such an unusual thing happen to them on the same day? Well, the thing is, firstly, it's not that unusual. It's a good idea to get your dog's bum done. Every no, I, I think it is unusual. Okay, let, let's try this again. What did you have for dinner today? Uh, <laughs> I had uh, curry. What kind of curry? Rogan Josh and a dal. I had a Rogan Josh and a dal too. What did you have for sides? Poppadoms and naan. What kind of naan? Oh my gosh, garlic naan. Ah, see, that's where it went wrong. I had kima naan. Because, Efka, <laughs> it's not that unusual when two people live in the same house... For them to share a meal and also to take their dog to the vet. Together. You're you're ruining it. You're ruining it. Oh, what are you doing right now? What am I doing? <laughs> Recording a podcast about board games. What a coincidence! Me too. Shall we talk about board games? Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent. With me, Elaine, and you, me, Efka. On today's episode, we'll be saving our civilizations from disaster in Empire's End, heading to the races in Ready, Set, Bet, and fitting Tetris-shaped emotions into our brains in Mindspace. Plus, we have an interview with Rob Davio. First, though, Dustin has emailed in with this. I was today years old when I realised that the review I watched almost two years ago was for a game that doesn't exist. I thought at the time that it looked interesting and worth looking into, but I never did. The YouTube algorithm got me. But your discussion on Singapore 1819 left me thinking about the artistic merits of board games as perceived by the wider world. I wonder if a fictional board game made by an artist warrants placement in a museum. Would it have if that game was instead real? I see incredible value in mechanical representation of historical events that approach subjects with nuance and an eye towards accuracy. Tory Brown's votes for women, Taylor Schuss's Stonewall Uprising and Amabel Holland's Endurance could all be pieces in similar exhibits. But I wonder if the fact that they are products somehow diminishes their value in at least the eyes of some to the point that a fictional board game surpasses the merits of otherwise real games. Well, that's actually quite funny because oftentimes I, I feel like with these more elaborate idea games, I, I am more interested in experiencing them rather than like coming back to them. Does that make sense? You know, my, my, my stance on the food chain magnet mm -hmm. is that I, I, I think it's a fantastic game that I want to play once in my life mm. and then that's it. I'm done, you know, and and it's similar to in that way, a museum exhibit because you know, you go to a museum exhibit, very rarely do you want to return, you know? Like, I've appreciated Dali's lobster phone, but <laughs> but do I really need to see it again? I really you know? like the lobster phone. I mean, I'd, I'd quite like to see that again. But that's why you have quite a lot of exhibits that travel around. You have, like, special mm. exhibits, don't you, that, that come up. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I maybe I agree a little bit, actually, that that maybe the fact that it isn't a real product, it is somehow elevated. That's very interesting. Let's move on to our first game. Empire's End comes from Brotherwise Games by designer John D. Clare with art by Quan Chai Moria. Well, talking of games that you only want to experience <laughs> once. <laughs> yeah, but not, yeah. You said that. Those were I your did. words. I, I never need that. to play this again. I did say that, yeah. Yeah. In our defense, uh, no, in your defense, mm. because actually I quite liked mm. it. Um, we have another John D. Clare game That's on the true. podcast today and and you like that a lot more spoilers ahead so yeah uh but yes you were not a fan can you can you briefly succinctly describe the 
the concept of what uh, Empire Zend is trying to do and why that didn't gel with you. You're trying to stop your city from being destroyed. Every round there is uh, some kind of disastrous event that is potentially going to wipe part of your city out. And you are bidding uh, some amount of food or other resource in order to not have your part of the city destroyed and for someone else to have their part of the city destroyed instead. Someone's going to have it destroyed, right? Someone is going to have it destroyed. And what... What was it about that that really didn't... Well, you know how I feel about bidding anyway. I'm not, yeah, I'm not okay. great at, at knowing how much to bid. Mm. So that's that's never something that makes me feel relaxed in a game. Uh, but also there, it felt like some kind of racketeering job. Like <laughs> like a part of your city will get destroyed unless you pay us. Yeah. Like that, It felt like that. And it was just not a chill game. And... It wasn't a chill game, was it? No. No. And I, like, I like in games where you build up your city and you go, oh, now I've got this or that or whatever. And this was like, well, you've got this. Just don't lose it. Yeah. So this this is kind of a weird game. I, I think we, we're sort of burying the lead. There's mm. one important aspect of mm. this that, that, that I think pe- might get people excited mm-hmm. right now. So Empire's End is no thanks the Euro game. <laughs> yeah. uh, and if if that pitch sounds weird and and kind of exciting, I I think I think there's something there. I'm not sure this game sings as much as it needs to, but also we've only played it at free players mm-hmm. and I think the ideal environment for this game is like More four players, players yeah. only, yeah. Um, but yes, the idea, if you played No Thanks, you'll know how which, this goes. Which my parents call for that. Yeah, except not for. No, yeah. 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 Uh, but it is precisely that. It's like, I don't want this. How much money do uh-huh. I need to pay to not have it? Right. Uh, and the way it works in No Thanks and very similarly in Empire's End is that, um, you know, you have a thing in front of you and you need to put like a resource or a pip on it to pass it on to the next person, Mm. right? Um, In Empire's End, you have three types of resources. You have wheat, swords, and hammers. Uh, And and so some some disasters, when you draw a random disaster, uh, you know, they'll only have wheat. Some will only have hammers. Some might have hammers and wheat or whatever. So these are the... These are the eligible resources that you can put on this disaster to pass it on to the next person. But then whoever takes the disaster and goes, yeah, okay, I'll take it. They take all the stuff that was put on it. Mm. So sometimes you might be planning to take it. You go, yeah, okay, I'm actually fine with that. that. Yeah, Yeah, it's not that bad, right? But you just put something on it to pass it along to milk out more from other people because it would be really bad for them. Mm. And the way that's facilitated is via this kind of bizarre mechanism that didn't always work for me uh basically uh, anytime you draw a disaster tile that says it's going to destroy a part of your city right it has a number on it and your city is basically just 11 tiles uh ordered in a numerical order so each are in a numbered slot so you know your like city tile for example that's worth 32 points which is the most out of all the tiles uh and it's only worth that if it doesn't get destroyed 
uh, might be in number three when you start the game, and right? And that's randomly decided at the beginning of the game yeah, what those but, tiles but it, are going to be. But it's the same for everyone, right? right? So if the f very first disaster tile we draw is number three, everyone is bidding money to not have their city destroyed. But as the game goes along, various effects shuffle your city around. And so what number three means to me might not anymore mean to you, right? So it's entirely possible that someone might be like entirely cool to take it because they're the only person who doesn't have their city in number three and everyone else does and in that position you can just keep swinging it around right <laughs> going you know like yeah have that destroyed and or then, and then you go to the production phase again and you realize that oh you've destroyed everything that produces anything because mm. you thought it didn't matter but it did uh, and now you can't make any more resources and so you're stuffed yeah, and this is the other weird thing about uh, Empires, and unlike No Thanks, where it's just this, like, ruthless bidding, uh, there's, there are different types of rounds that keep happening based on this sort of snake track, and that snake track is basically the game clock, which says now is a disaster phase, now is a production phase, now is an industry phase, etc., etc. And so different things might be happening on a different round mm. uh sometimes you'll just be bidding sometimes you'll be getting resources sometimes you'll be repairing your city because you have a chance to repair something that's destroyed although it is exorbitantly expensive and the, the final kind of icing on the cake that makes empires end exciting is that when you take uh a disaster when you go yeah okay i'm passing on the bidding i'm taking all the resources um you also take that disaster tile and then it becomes an upgrade for one of your healthy tiles. Mm. <laughs> and then, yeah. like, there's all these kinds of weird mishmashy things where, like, the position of tiles matters, whether this is adjacent to the specific upgrade or not. There you are know. a lot of things interlocking with each other. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is very clever. I think I found it very clever. I just didn't get the vibe I wanted <laughs> from the game that evening. Yeah. Well, you, I, I saw you suffer. You were just sitting there and going, like, <laughs> I don't want. Uh, my uh, to die. Yeah, like you did, you were not enjoying yourself on any of the turns because... No, I, I at the beginning I said oh, every round there is a disaster. That is not true. There is, but it feels like yeah. it. It does feel like, oh no, it's a disaster again. Okay. Well, I mean, some rounds you have two disasters. This is true. Yeah, you have you to do. bid on them separately. Uh -huh. Like if, if they both get passed to you, you have to bid on one, mm. right? And even if you... And then bid on the other. And even if you take one of them you still have to put something on, on the, the other, other one, right yeah. which is just like wait didn't i already take something i don't want this the amount of like negative pressure this game exerts on your brain is is, is spectacular actually mm -hmm. I, i've never quite experienced anything so demoralizing <laughs> <laughs> well i mean this city is being destroyed yeah yeah yeah, and and I guess there's... It's the end of the Empire. Yeah, I, I think that's the mark of a good game because I, I don't think this game is going to be for everyone, right? Mm. But but the feeling it evokes is really like no other game, you know, where it's just like bad stuff's going to happen. And it, it's, you know what? It's like watching Uncut Gems, right? Mm. Where you watch Adam Sandler do mm. the worst 
you know, kind of things to himself. Like he <laughs> he he is asking for it this uh-huh. entire movie, and you go, well, it can't get any worse than that, right? And then it does, <laughs> and, and it does, and it, again and Every again scene and again. Is yeah, a little bit worse than the last. Yeah, so that's pretty much Empire's yeah. End. Uh, yeah, that's how and, it feels. Yeah. And my experience of it, I I think I wanted it to be a little bit more lenient because I got sort of an impression that. That there's some sort of a leverage, right? Okay, your city gets destroyed, but you get these bonus tiles. And, like, you know, it might get, you know, kind of like, it might swing balance the out. other way. Yeah, like yeah. balance out, you know, where it's just like, no, no, it's just bad. It's just bad <laughs> all the time. You do get something, but oftentimes it's like the situation is so bad or you've mismanaged it so bad that it doesn't really leverage anything. It doesn't matter anymore. Like, I got this tile. Uh, as an upgrade that said oh hey three points for every one of your tiles that are destroyed at the end of the game Mm -hmm. and it's like is this a strategy you know Mm -hmm. can i can i be like a little bit more lenient well no because because like the least amount of points you're gonna get from a tile is five if it's Mm -hmm. alive right so uh, up to 32 it's a consolation prize yeah it's definitely a consolation prize more than anything else you just you You just got the food mixer you wanted the holiday to greece but you got the food mixer oh wow this game uh Anywho, I had fun and Elaine didn't. And I think you can decide for yourselves whether Empire's End is for you based on how much you enjoy being tortured on your board game night. We had a discussion in a previous episode about Undaunted regarding alternative settings. A couple of people have written in to tell us about some games they think might interest us. Alter says... While you will presumably eagerly await the recently announced Undaunted 2200 Callisto, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that there is already a non-historical game by Mr. Thompson in circulation. And then they go on to give us a link uh, for the game For What Remains. uh, There are some skirmish games. There are a set of skirmish games uh, which are set in a post-apocalyptic near future. Oh, okay. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. It's a title I've 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 heard mm. about. I just didn't know anything about mm. it. I will check it out. Thank you. And Sebastian says, I'm currently enjoying listening to the backlog of your podcast. In the episode where you discuss Undaunted Battle of Britain, you mentioned wanting to play a war game set on the home front, showing civilian life during wartime. I wanted to point you to a small but deeply emotional RPG called Blackout, a game of civil defence. You play as women volunteers in the civil defence of London during the Blitz. The game is designed for one-shots, simulating one difficult night of fighting fires, rescuing neighbours and defusing unexploded bombs. They also gave a link to the game. Thank you for all these recommendations. They sound very interesting, yes. I appreciate everyone letting us know about games that we might not have heard of but if you have any games that you would like to tell us about please let me know elaine at nopunincluded.com still to come we have an interview with rob davio and mindspace but now coming in at number two just behind empire's end is ready set bet ready set bet comes from publisher aeg by designer john d Clare again with art by kirk w buckendorf and athena Cagle or Cagle. i'm not sure sorry Elaine, mm. after this game, you have said to me, I want to play that again. <laughs> yeah, it was. I really enjoyed it. I, it was so frantic. And it, it. so do you want to tell us about it first? Yeah, go on. Okay, okay. You, I, I can tell you're excited, mm. but, but I'll brief people in. So Ready, Set, Bet is 
a game by John DeClaire, which is not like any other game I've played before. Surprise! Once again, this podcast, John DeClaire delivers us a new experience. Uh, it is a game about horse racing. Boo! But a board game about horse racing. Yay! Uh, and in this game, you bet on horses who are going to win or come second or come third. If you've heard that concept before from numerous other games like Longshot the Dice Game or Winner's Circle or Royal Turf or what have you. Yes, it's kind of like one of those, but unlike those, it's real time, baby. Yeah, more than any of those other games, it, it felt like we were, I don't want to say in a betting shop because that sounds weird, but like actually doing this thing, the, the whole, apart, apart from having like a Tic Tac Man doing all the up, you got so excited, you dropped the, the script, script down. Uh, uh, apart from having a Tic Tac Man doing all the arm movements, like it felt like we were actually betting on these horses because we used the app for it. And I think that is where the game shone. Yes, it did. At one point, I was hammering the wall with my fist and yelling, no! <laughs> yes, you were. You were. And uh, we were going, come on, number nine, come on, number nine, or whatever. You know, like, it was yeah. really like, because we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. Like, the dice were rolled for us on the app, uh, and, and this nice gentleman uh, did the sort of commentary of it, like, coming in at number, you know, coming up from behind or whatever. Uh, and and then suddenly, you know, and by nice gentleman, you mean uh, a pre-recorded on the app? Yes, on the app. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. Obviously, it wasn't a real. I mean, it was mm. a real person, but not in the room. Um, and and you know, just evoking like an atmosphere of of a race. And I I don't like horse racing. I think it's cruel and horrid. But I really like it in games. Uh, and this, like I said, you know, I think evokes the atmosphere of betting on horses or betting on something. It could have been, you know, spiders racing for, you know, it didn't really matter. Mm. Uh, but that kind of feeling of come on, you know, that, yeah, than yeah. any other game I've played, I think. It, it was incredible. Uh, I, it really somehow managed to get that out of us. And And so, OK, so there's a couple of caveats before we go on, you know. Uh, being very effusive about this game. Uh, so this is a very strange kind of situation. This is definitely a party game, mm -hmm. first of all, mm -hmm. right? So you, you I sh would only recommend this game if you frequently have lots of people over at your place. Oh, you don't want to play it like two-player, no. No, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, people who are ready for like an experience type yeah. of game, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. um, so uh, the second caveat, you should have a big... It, wherever you're playing, you should have a big TV screen or a projector or whatever, because you don't want to play this on the app, just like on your right. phone or on your tablet. That just won't work, right? You need it projected in some way. We had it on, you know, we had it in our living room. We have a big telly screen there. We just, you know, uh, put the app through the telly mm -hmm. and it worked, right? It was brilliant. Um uh, you also need a lot of people. Uh, mm. And yeah, we, we had friends visiting. Visiting, We had Tom from Shut Up and Sit mm. Down. We had Carly Reinhardt as well from Gnarly Carly Games who taught us Ready, Said Bed. So thank mm. you very much for that, Carly. Um, and You're just name dropping now. Well, I am name dropping <laughs> because, you know, I want to I share it like, uh, you know. Oh, God. No, it's digging my own hole. <laughs> anyway, the game. Anyway, the game. Um so yeah games <laughs> aren't they fun aren't they good with friends with friends yeah. yeah and i guess maybe it was the atmosphere a little bit but you need that kind of 
atmosphere. You need people to be into the idea of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But w w all you're doing is, okay, just to, to actually explain the game, all you're doing is you have some betting chips, mm -hmm. right? So you have a two, a three, a four, and a five at the beginning of the game. You'll get sort of a little bit more as, as you go along, maybe, because there are various, uh, there's four rounds, and each round you get like a new ability, effectively. Uh, and there are places that you can put your bets on in real time as the horse race goes on, <laughs> right? Uh, so you can you can place on a horse to win, you know, uh, you can place on a horse to place and you can place on a horse to show, right? So if, if you're placing on a horse to show, if it comes in third, second or first, you're going to get money out of it. If, if placed, you know, second or first, you get money out of it. And if you're placing it on winning... It needs to come first. Yeah, it needs to come first. Yeah. And obviously the multipliers on those spaces are much bigger the more risk you take. But also the way the horses moved move are determined by uh, a roll of 2d6 dice and each horse has a number so for example number seven will move every time you roll seven on the dice so it's a lot more likely mm, to win yeah. but uh, other horses uh, have this strange catch-up mechanism so horse number two and three is the same horse first mm -hmm. of all so two and three will always move that horse and same for 11 and 12 11 and 12 will always move that horse but also if you roll 11 let's say and you roll 12 again right if that horse moves twice in a row it gets a bonus of free movement mm. which the bonus decreases based on the frequency of the chance of that die combination coming out. So number eight does get that bonus, but it only moves a bonus of one mm. if eight comes out again, whereas seven doesn't get that bonus no. at all, no. right? Seven just gets the bonus of, you know, being seven. So oftentimes you are incentivized to make very risky bets mm. because <laughs> because if if suddenly you see like, you know... 11 and 12 go ahead once and then four more times effectively because you know it moves once and then plus three bonus movement you know it's five ahead of everyone else and you're like shall i bet shall yeah. i bet on number 12 right but, but the thing is you yeah. can only bet on that specific space if no one else has bet on it unless you have a special ability that lets you yeah so it, so you don't want to bid too late or sorry bet bet too late because that spot might go other people are watching that television screen too yeah and they're seeing what you're seeing and yeah. they're thinking maybe what you're thinking and so they're you know you want to get ahead of them as well but you don't want to mess up and bet too early and and get all your chips out and then oh no you know then suddenly number 11 or whatever speeds ahead you know what do you do now you spent all your bets it is such a stressful feeling like it but is in a good way but in a good way yeah because yeah. there's no real money <laughs> no there is no real money <laughs> but yeah it's and and there are certain spots that give you a penalty if you lose as well mm. so they actually subtract money on my first round not only did i not win anything but i also got a bunch of penalties but, mm -hmm. but because i had no money it <laughs> yeah. didn't matter yeah. i was yeah, like you well can't go below zero yeah. yeah i didn't win anything but i've also lost a bunch of money yeah um so, oh well. <laughs> yeah, oh well. But then in the second round, I got like half of my entire game mm. score, if not more, because I was like, okay, I see how this works. I'm gonna wait a little bit, but not too much, you know, and then and then I was banging the wall, yeah, right? You know, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. It reminded me of, and I think I have said this uh in comparison with other board game horse racing games, 
Um, but it reminded me the most of, uh, do you know, at the seaside, there was like an electronic horse racing machine. Do you ever, did you ever see that? No, I didn't. So, like, so it was physical horses, like tiny mm. little plastic horses in like a, a dome. Uh, and they were all lined up together and they're all different colours. And then you would pay 10 pence and you would bet on one of the horses. And number one uh, came out the most... Uh, but would only pay you 10 pence back. Number mm. eight came out the least, but would pay you a pound if it won. So so you were kind of weighing up which horse to bet on uh, from that. So it was it was a seasidey game. You know, it's, it wasn't serious. It was only like 10 pence a bet. I mean, this, reminds me of that this fe- felt like a seasidey game, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it's very emotional. Back to your point about the app, right? Mm. Yeah, I w- just would not recommend playing this without the app because the way it works without the app is that one person either sits out and is just the announcer right and their job as the announcer is to roll two dice move one horse on this tiny board which you can't see as well as you can on the telly screen right and then roll two dice move one horse roll two dice move and then if you want to be a good host you also are trying to do the job of the announcer play everything up which I, I mean, I guess that could be good, right? But I just don't think it's as good or as smooth as like this uncontrollable app mm. that you can't do anything about. You just watch it roll dice and you start tearing your hair out, right? I, I think if you found the right person to play that role who wanted yeah. to do it and was confident to do it, then it would still be fine. But if not, then de- yeah, definitely the app is is better. There is a variant in the rule book for being the announcer and a better, but oh that my gosh. no, I just I just would never do that. That sounds too cumbersome. Is that allowed? Like you can't be the announcer and put a bet on a horse. No, well, you? there's there's some like extra rules there uh, to kind of you know, but it's not like you can control anything anyway. You know, you, you all you're doing is rolling dice. It's out of your control. Right. Yeah. Right. So you can't like cheat or anything but it's still it looks very cumbersome because not only do you have to take care of like maintain this board but also like place but ah it's just too much you know Mm. um yeah i'd say get the app it's free get it on your telly have a bunch of friends over if they like being loud and raucous and betting on things you will have a blast if they don't they will hate this game Still to come, we have Mindspace, but first we have our interview with someone who has worked on over a hundred published board games, Rob Davio. Delighted to welcome to the show Rob Davio, who is a board game designer, and correct me if I'm wrong, a board game publisher too. He's designed such games as Betrayal at House on the Hill, and is also responsible for inventing this genre of legacy games, and has designed or co-designed Risk Legacy, Pandemic Legacy, Betrayal Legacy, Seafall, and most recently Ticket to Ride Legacy. Uh, Rob, I wanted to invite you to the show to talk about legacy games but first as with all guests i want to dig a little bit into your board gaming biography can you tell me a little bit about like your first experiences with games uh what did you play as a kid is there anything in particular in your memory that sticks out i played uh, a number of games when i was a kid and they were kids games there was i mean the hobby market at the time when i was growing up were avalon hill hex based games so like i wasn't going to be playing those but i i played the sort of classic american staples of uh, you know candyland and shoots and ladders and clue and monopoly and then whatever licensed games were kicking around in the 70s i played a game called uncle wiggly 
which I have a fond memory of. I suspect it's incredibly racist if I looked at it now. <laughs> so I was always around playing games, a uh, little electronic games. I mean, I played Dark Tower when I was 10 or 11. I had other sorts of games, Simon and Merlin, you know, putting batteries in games was a big thing in the 70s. Um, but I really fell in love with gaming through uh, pl- finding Dungeons and Dragons when I was 11. That was like, oh, I can make a game, but it's a story, but I'm emotionally involved and the rules have gaps in them that as a DM, I fill in and start thinking about game as a games as a not someone else did the rules. But how do I how do I make this work for my table? And at some level, that's what started me on the the path to becoming a game designer. Imagine I know nothing about board games. Uh, How would you explain the idea of legacy games to me? Sure. If you know nothing about board games, this is an odd hobby of making a podcast about them, but I can work (laughs) with it. Uh, I I say we take the idea, I've talked because I've done this before with people, um, Think of it as a television series. Most of the time when you play a board game and you put it away, next time you take it out, it completely starts over. Things will change in the game because it'll be random cards and random dice and different decisions, but the game itself stays the same. But a legacy game allows you to take some of the actions and choices you make in the first game and carry them through to the second, just like a TV show will pick up where the other one left off. And they're not huge changes, but you basically will play 6, 10, 12, 15 games. And and at the end, you'll have a game that is unique to you and your group, and it'll tell a story. And, you know, that's what makes it a legacy game. Now, normally, if I'm saying this to someone who really doesn't understand board games, I can watch their face and see if they're sort of getting it or if they're just absolutely, they'll, that sounds very weird. That sounds very complicated, you know, those sorts of things. And then we can talk about it from there. So you you are responsible for this idea, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you, you brought it to the world. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you ended up doing Risk Legacy? Because that was the first one. And what propelled you to design a game that can be modified by players? Was there... A specific, like a germ of an idea, or was it a confluence of things? Yeah, it's a long story, so I'll give you the short version. The short version is I was at a brainstorm for uh, the game Clue, or Cluedo, as you probably know, and um, was just brainstorming all sorts of things. And at some point in the day, I said something jokingly about, I don't know why they keep inviting these people over for dinner, someone always gets murdered as if it was an ongoing sort of thing. And then they're like, well, let's try again. Oh, no, someone else got murdered. And it was kind of a throwaway line. But later that day when we were doing a brainstorm about assumptions about a game, like, for example, the game board goes in the middle of the table. The game board is accessible by all players. The game board starts unfolded. The game board is face up, right? Things that are Mm. so basically common that you don't even think about them because sometimes there's a chance to change some of that, right? Like what if the game board started folded and part of playing was unfolding it? And I just happened to say, whatever you do in one game doesn't affect the start of the next game. And I remember my boss was like, Ooh, Hey, Ooh. And, you know, then I just spent the rest of the meeting thinking about that and thinking about video games and comic books and television and role-playing games and sort of serial discussion and I turned it into a game called Clue the Usual Suspects. Oh not even a game, a pitch for Hasbro. And they were baffled and confused and shut it down real fast. 
And then, I don't know, sometime within the next year, I was working on a bunch of risk ideas and we had a bunch of ideas. And one was, oh, what if we did that continuing story thing that we were talking about for Clue? And I and I just ended up applying it to risk. And that game died so many times. And I spent like a year and a half willing it into existence. And I really didn't know if it was going to be something where everyone went, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Please don't do that again. Or if, like, I hope people would be like, oh, this is neat. And it turned out that, you know, enough people think it's neat. So it was ultimately a narrative thread that brought it about. Yeah, there, there, there's two parts to it. It was a little bit of some of the things you do in one game affect the next. Like in Risk, you put stickers down. Like you might build a wall or a bunker or do things. But I discovered pretty early if you give people stickers and tell them they can use them in a the game, they will use them right away. And they're mm. like, well, there's no more. They're, I ran out. And so I was like, okay, we can't give you all the things at the beginning. What if there's little packets you can open, little envelopes or boxes that gives you more. So you, you, we keep handing them out in little batches so you don't use them all at once. And then, so I did that and I'm like, well, how do you open these packets? I'm like, well, maybe when you do something or something happens in the game. And then I started thinking, well, now there needs to be a story that kind of ties all this together. So there's a reason you don't open it at the beginning. And so it ended up being two pillars, at least for me, when I design them. Um, the board in the game is going to change in some way, and they're going to, it's going to tell a story at the same time. So it's not just mechanical changes. There's a narrative reason of why something happens. So um, I know you're a part of a company called Restoration Games, which is a company that focuses on redesigning old games with modern design twists. Uh, do you think there is a parallel between this idea of breathing new life into an old design and the idea of redesigning an existing game with legacy sensibilities. I think so. It's how my brain works, right? I said that I started with role-playing games and in some sense, I'm always trying to tell a story. And when I was in college and for about a year after I uh, thought I wanted to go into television as a writer, and I did a lot of sketch comedy and I've done a lot of writing. And then I was an advertising copywriter. So I'm a storyteller by nature. Uh, my games tend to be experience driven and narrative driven. So if you give a game to me, most of the time, the way my brain works is I'm going to be trying to do something a little bit different, a little bit story driven. And so um, games I work on tend to feel the same because that's what designers do. So yes, I see a, a subtle parallel between a legacy game and restoring a game because when we're restoring a game, what we say is we want it to be as good as you remember, not as good as it was, as good as you remember. And memories are a tricky thing. When we did both Return to Dark Tower and Fireball Island, many people said, oh, it's nice, but it's much smaller than I was when I was a kid. And in fact, in both cases, it was much taller, but you're not a kid. Um, and so if you remember the game, you, we ask a lot of people when we're working on it, like, what do you remember? What's your favorite part? How old were you? Like, and people tell these amazing stories of, oh, I was you know, with my cousin and they came over and they had this game and we stayed up too late. And I remember we giggled. I'm like, do you remember anything about the game? They're like, not really, but I love it for this memory. And so we're trying to pull all these memories, look for common threads. And then when we design the game, say, how do we evoke these these feelings in people through you know game mechanisms and design it was fascinating uh, exploring return to dark tower for me for because uh, i grew up in the soviets right uh and 
the idea of something like Return to Dark Tower just seems outrageous, you know, in, in the time when I was a kid. Um, which, I mean, it wouldn't have been in the time when I was a kid because it was released just before I was, before I was born. But um, yeah, no, it was fascinating exploring it from a perspective of like, I don't know what this is. I better look it up. And so then when I saw like how the original Dark Tower looks and how it plays. I was like, this is this is so much more advanced. It's ridiculous, you know? I, yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge it because we thought about that a lot. Dark Tower was cutting edge for its time. It handled battle. It knew how many warriors you had. It knew which keys you had found. It knew which kingdom you were in. That was amazing for 1981, 1982, whatever it was in there. So we had to do something with ours that felt like it was on the cutting edge of what a board game could do, just like the original did. And it took us like maybe two years to figure out what that was. Mm. We had a lot of ideas that did not work at all. Risk Legacy was the first Legacy game, and it was pretty well received. But Pandemic Legacy was critically and commercially triumphant, right? Uh, did you get a sense when designing it that it would create this movement with many other designers adapting this idea? Uh, no, no one is more surprised than I am that this silly little idea caught on. And I'm very happy that it did. Um, I think what happened was I did Risk Legacy, which doesn't have a strong narrative. It's got a series of tropey things that you can kind of open in various orders. And then I was working on Seafall. So I had given a little bit more thought to the genre. But then when Matt came in, he and I worked very well together. He was one who said we should have like a deck of cards that tells a more prescribed story. I was like, yeah, that's that's great. Let's do that. And the only indication that I had that it might do well was it was work, but it was easy work. Right. Almost always. And it happened in season two and season zero when I was working that, but not in season one. Almost always you just drive a game into a ditch and you're like, how did I get here? How do I fix it? And it just didn't happen. Like it went quickly. It went smoothly. All the playtesters liked it. People are like, this is really cool. And I went, okay, so either this is going to be great or we missed something obvious because it shouldn't have gone this smoothly. And it turned out it just, you know, right people at the right time, I guess. That's always the scariest, isn't it? When things are just working and you don't know if it's just, is this complete rubbish or like, am I onto something? And there's just no way of knowing until you put it out. Oh, yeah. The, a board game gets play tested more in the first two days after it's released and its entire development. And then you see what you missed. Um, so no, I'm glad you mentioned Seafall. I don't want to hover too much on it. Uh, but so you did Seafall and you were also working on uh, a more elaborate game called Origins that I believe was that never eventually came out. Um, I mentioned these because I think it would be interesting to hear what you think doesn't necessarily always work in legacy games and why like what are what are the experiences that don't lend themselves well to this system well i think you need a world or people or characters to tell a story around personally otherwise you know other people can disagree but for me otherwise there's nothing for people to hook onto seafall didn't do that well for a variety of reasons mostly i um the analogy my wife gave, which I like, is when the Beatles broke up, George Harrison released a triple album to get a lot of things out of his system. <laughs> and Seafall was my triple album, right? It had too many ideas and I hadn't learned to edit for myself yet because I used to have people at Hasbro like, this is too much, right? I was kind of going solo and wanted to prove to people like, I can do more than, you know, Monopoly license games. Um, and uh, I, there, there should have been an editing pass 
called downstream with the publisher, but Plaid had it been bought by Z-Man and there was just a lot of internal things going on there where they didn't have the, the you know, brain space to do it. So it ended up being, it missed an editing pass. Uh, but things I learned about it is I needed to remember that people might not play this game for months between like chapter four and chapter five. And there's no uh, recap of what happened. And you need a reason after game one to want to play game two. And I think Seafall has too many mechanisms going on. Um, but also I think the narrative, I was trying to do like a Lord of the Rings, right? You know, it takes them forever to leave the Shire. I wanted to like build this very slow story that got bigger and bigger. And I just think with a board game, you want to play the first one and go, oh, I want to play that again. And it was short and you understood it. And then two months go by and you come back and you go, I remember what's going on. So one lesson I learned is it has to be a little bit more of a summer blockbuster. Like the story needs to be a little more straightforward. I think I've had more success when people like, I get it. I know what's happening. I haven't played in a couple months. Like people go, what's going on? You're like, there was a saying. So like, not that the bad guy needs to like wear a black hat and twirl his mustache, but you kind of need to know if there's a bad person, like that's a bad person. And the bad person's trying, you know, like it needs to be very understandable. Mm -hmm. And Seafall had a dense story that was very subtle and built over time and had a lot of mechanisms and uh, origins. I, until you said, I'm like, what are you talking about? I had completely forgotten that idea had existed. And I spent a bunch of time. Yeah. That was the idea of Dirk Niemeyer. Um, he was with Artana. I think he sold the company and it was really a case of, it was so big. I'm not sure how anyone could get it done, but ultimately <laughs> Uh, Dirk like like sort of cleaner, more elegant games, and I like games that were more narrative and had some more stuff to them. And I would have an idea for a prototype, and he wouldn't like it. He'd have a prototype, and I wouldn't like it. So eventually, like, oh, we just see different things for games. And I said, do what you want. And I think, I think it just collapsed under the size of the idea. I don't know what it says about me. I own two copies of that George Harrison album on vinyl. I've just been to Essen Spiel, and one of the big changes I've seen this year in board game publishing is a push towards more sustainable productions. Publishers are like opting to reduce plastic, including wrapping cards and paper rather than shrink wrap, using FSC certified paper, new wood molding techniques. Is there a more sustainable future for legacy games? Is this something you are actively thinking about? Well, I try to be more sustainable in a number of ways with the games. It's a, it's a weird thing you put, especially if on Kickstarter, if you put plastic mm -hmm. figures up there, you make like three times as much money. Yeah. So, that, but you're also like not really being environmentally conscious, but you can do things like make the figures out of recycled plastic, you know, even if they're more expensive to like, at least not be introducing new, new plastic into the world. Um, it's something we talk about with restoration. We talk about it um, for legacy games. It's tricky because a lot of the price of a legacy game is hiding things. So you end up with mm. extra waste. And so like one thing that, um, like in Ticket to Ride Legacy, out soon, um, instead of wrapping everything individually where you have packaging, we just have a big brick of cards that are numbered and we tell you to go get cards out of it. It was something that I did in Betrayal Legacy as well. Like, here's a deck. We're not going to make 10 packets with four cards each. We're going to make 40 cards and we're just going to say, go get card 24, right? And so there's little things, but it's tricky. I can imagine it is, yeah. Um, so Ticket to Ride Legacy is releasing now. Uh, what have people new and seasoned to Legacy games got to look forward to? Uh, for Ticket to Ride? Well, it's a Ticket to Ride game. And uh, 
three egotistical designers all working together. Actually, we're, we're all pretty chill. If you like Ticket to Ride, I, I think you'll like it. The story is there. It's not as narratively driven as some other ones. It's much more casual, I think. Just Ticket to Ride is a casual game. We wanted to have a slightly wider audience. Um, one of the things that I do like about it is, and it's tricky to explain, uh, well, it's not really spoilers. When you open up the game, you can see that the map is just the east coast of the U.S. and it's an uncompleted puzzle. It's not a big leap to realize you're going to find more pieces of the U.S. as you play, but the order that you get them, that you find them, will shape the feel and flow of your game. Whereas if you played the campaign again and did it in a different order, it would feel a little different, which I find fascinating and I like. Rob, thank you so very much for being on the show. I look forward to trying Ticket to Ride Legacy uh, and I hope it does really well. Thank you for having me. So after we recorded this interview, you've you've told me that his name might not be pronounced Davio. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, if, if I was pronouncing it as French, I would pronounce it Davio. Okay. Right? But on the website, on the BGG, his page on BGG, it says it's pronounced Davio. Uh-huh. So I don't quite know how to well, pronounce Well, maybe, maybe it's just, uh, like, still slightly Americanized for people who... Who, who knows? can't pronounce french things like myself um but yeah apologies to rob yeah. for, for mispronouncing your name you probably mispronounced loads of names <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway should we move on let's talk about our last game of the episode mindspace comes from publisher all played by designer now shimamura with art by julianne griep well, you say publisher all play, but their name used to be boardgametables.com. Okay, but that's not their name anymore. I know. I just I just find it so funny when like your brand name has a dot com in it. I there's a reason they changed it, right? Why? Cause they had a dot com in it, so they changed it to all play. <laughs> which is, no, it's not dot com <laughs> anymore. Yeah, no. which makes a lot more sense. But I don't know. It just always cracks me up. Uh, do you know what doesn't crack me up? Mm. All plays rule books. Mm. Oh my god. Mm. I, when I read the rules to uh, Mindspace, uh, I, it, I I was like, well, okay, the rules aren't really complete on what everything does but okay i'll figure it out from the example there is a pretty solid example that it gives for for scoring mm -hmm. so okay i can work it out from that so i worked it out from that then turned over my my brain board that you draw on and lo and behold on the back of that is the actual rules for what everything does but the first thing the rule book says is like place your brain board in front of you so and then you go through the rest of the rules not knowing if you haven't like you know scouted through what the is box wrong with that okay where these so rules are. all play if you're listening here's here's the thing right um i know i know that publishers have this conversation a lot and i know that amongst you there is this talking point of that like oh the number one barrier for like people wanting to buy a board game is the idea of reading a rule book you're not making a rule book for someone who hasn't purchased the board game yet. You're making it for someone who has, mm -hmm. right? If a person doesn't want to buy a board game because they don't want to read a rule book, mm -hmm. guess what they're not going to do? They're not going to buy a board game. They are not your customers. Your customers are people who buy board games, who invite people and want to teach them. And for them to teach games effectively and get people <laughs> into games, they need to have a good rule book so that they can teach the games, 
<laughs> For those of you listening at home, Efka is now waving his arms around. I am. Please <laughs> stop it. Stop it now. Stop it with the terrible rule books. <laughs> you can't make them small and and not include rules and still have them be good. Please stop it. I mean, it was this this one was fine. It was fine once I'd realised the rules were actually on the back of the game uh, brain board. Um, it was it was fine, but I, I get what you mean. Yeah, like yes. it, it is it is a a problem mm. when rule books are so obtuse. Yes. Okay. So, um, wow. having that minor rant aside, I enjoyed yeah. Mindspace. It was a nice roll and write. Um, yeah. I, I don't know why we're talking about it really because there's so many roll and writes out there, but it did feel like this one did something a little bit not not so different that yeah. it's not a roll. It's still a roll and write. If you don't like roll and writes, you're not gonna like this. You're not gonna like this. If you don't like fitting Tetris pieces into a into a brain shape, yeah, you're you're, you're also not gonna like, like this. No. But if you like roll and writes, this was a nice one. I really mm. quite enjoyed it. Uh, and it, it had this very clever moment, uh, which I'm going to describe as soon as I describe how you play this game. So in Mindspace, you have a bunch of Tetris shapes that you need to draw into a brain. But the shapes are of different colors. However, the shape and color isn't determined until... Mm the turn where you actually have to place it. And the way that works is that you have this carousel of six cards that all represent different polyomino shapes, and they're numbered one through six. And then you roll a bunch of dice uh, that have colors on them, mm. right? And these dice then go onto these certain cards based on the numbers and on the die color and all of that, mm. right? And, and so suddenly this like L shape becomes blue, whereas it might have not been available the previous round and been pink the round before that, right? Uh, and this carousel keeps moving one space over every every round, and and thus new shapes enter, and older shapes disappear. And the dice are rolled every round. Too, yeah, so. yeah. So so colors change all the time. Uh, now, why is that important? Well, first of all, you can't draw a like color next to a like color. So you have these like sections of the brain, which are not like named. They're not like the amygdala or whatever, right? Or the hippocampus. They're just no vague blocks, right? <laughs> uh, and and I mean, it does have uh, blocked off bits in it too, like holes that you can't color in at all yes uh, and i've seen a picture of my brain and i do have holes <laughs> like that so that makes sense Funny. nice nice bit of representation <laughs> i don't know what they're called in the game honestly but yeah i like that uh so yeah so you can't draw light color next to light color but you also kind of like get various bonuses based on what color the shape is that you're drawing mm. so there is one color i can't remember what it is where you want to draw like an opposite inverted next to it I th or somewhere else mm. uh or yeah some want to be next to it some just want to have a duplicate yeah uh, there's various reasons to draw various colors it's thematic too according to the game because like the the two that uh, you want a cop an exact copy mm. uh, is pink right and it's right. like romance because you want to find your 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 shape that goes with you it, it's that kind of wow kind that's of theming. stretching it, it i know well all of it's stretching it but they've all uh, like i don't know orange is friendship and blue is music or something like mm. this and you want to have orange and blue next to each other because music is better with friends like it's, it's yeah that kind of theming 
Yeah. So uh, talking of stretching, the brain looks stretched <laughs> as well, right? Mm. Like there's this. It's it's not like it's a square shape effectively, but the way they've drawn it, like the diameters skew. If that makes sense, it's, I don't think it's an accurate representation, uh, pictorial representation of a brain. No, no definitely. No. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it was it was fun. I, so the one clever bit that I found is that oftentimes you will need like the same shape but in a different color. Yes, right, because that benefits you. And so if you draw one shape, you know that that shape will likely come again based on how far up it is on the carousel if it just entered there's a good chance you're gonna roll the die and it'll it'll you know go on that card and it might be the same color or maybe it'll be a different color and, and so every time you're kind of drawing something you're effectively taking a risk on whether you're gonna get good access to that shape again because it's a die roll so you mm -hmm. don't know right and so there's this constant feeling of just you know waiting for the die roll to be exactly what you want to uh but then you're waiting for another shape and you're waiting for another shape and some shapes leave and when they leave you know they're not gonna come back yeah, right individual cards yeah, yeah. um so it, it, it's very crunchy in that way but it also in incentivizes you to like fill in each area as much as possible so there is that kind of like do i draw smaller shapes do i draw bigger shapes uh, it's it's funky what they've done with shapes. Mm. I didn't know so many things could be done with shapes, mm. but but Mindspace somehow made it pleasant. I, I enjoyed it. Sorry, having just looked at it, the, the rules are on the back of the scoreboard, not your brain board. It's on the back of the board, I get yeah, it. Yeah, I just wanted, to, I don't want to be, you know... Yeah, yeah, clarity yeah. is important. Oh, purple is music too. We, we didn't get this right at all. <laughs> well, you know, th that's the thing. Uh, we we also didn't mention, so there's like end of game scoring goals. If you manage to achieve this and you're the first person to achieve this, you know, like you cobbled some shape together or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or a number of like a certain color, you know, you'll get points. It's very derivative as a roll-in, right? It's not doing anything we haven't seen like Welcome To or Railroad yeah, Inc. Yeah. do, you know, it's almost like a combination of, of Railroad Inc. and and uh oh, that's high praise coming from you well i mean nothing beats railroad inc right period <laughs> uh but it, almost like a combination of welcome to and Ra railroad inc but not as exciting as either of those i mm. would say but not not exciting i like playing this for like a very quick one i think this is one of the better ones and and definitely an enjoyable one clever it's just not there's nothing about mind space that made me go Ooh, this is like no, cool, right. you know. No, it, it's not gonna blow your mind. Mm. I did there. Um, no, I I really like the the graphic design of this, the artwork and the graphic design of this. Um, it's very pleasing mm. uh, to look at because there's lots of different colors because you're coloring in this board, right? Yeah. But somehow they all fit together really well, and I, I it just I just found it very pleasing and calming. Yes, it is. And the other thing that I liked is. So this, this is a uh, bonus and a negative at the same time. Mm. So you get markers, but they're all different colors, right? And, and normally Why in a roll... negative? Let me finish. Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> normally in a roll and write, you get like just black markers. And this is nice and colorful. And like, you know, I don't know. There's something quite pleasing about mm. ha having markers of different colors. Also, when they run out, 
you haven't got those colors. Oh, you you have to. Well, yeah. Right. This is listen. This isn't something I brought up. This is this is something I heard Tom Vassell say on his review. Oh, well, I'm sure Tom Vassell has access to purchase some coloured markers. But exactly those colours. This, it this orange. Need, no, it doesn't have to be exactly. This pink. Those. It doesn't matter, does it? As long as they're roughly orange, roughly pink, roughly green. There, okay. Tom Basil, you are wrong, apparently, <laughs> according to Elaine well, from No Pun Included. Well, I mean, <laughs> really. What a funny little nitpick. Like, what if your black marker runs out? What are you going to do then? Oh, you'd have to buy another one, wouldn't you? Or, or nick one from another game. Oh, all right then, that's fine. But not if they're coloured. Oh, no. That's completely different. That's like a big <laughs> negative of the game. What? <laughs> Calm down now. <laughs> we apparently each get one rand for an all-play game apparently so yeah i'm not running about that's the thing i'm not running about the game okay i'm ranting okay. about that as a criticism of the game all right okay but uh, but i'm not ranting about tom vassal <laughs> just to clarify dig your own hole <laughs> <laughs> and an excellent board game reviewer i just found this very cute very cozy pleasant to play a solid game, a solid roll and write. Mm. Um, like you said, doesn't do anything life altering, but lovely just to sit down, colour in some squares on a brain. Nice. That's all the games. If you have anything to say about any of them, don't forget to drop me an email, elaine at nopunincluded.com, or if you have any general questions or comments. Rich writes in to say... I've enjoyed your podcast and YouTube videos for a really long time. You are always good at presenting what you liked and disliked about the games you review. I would love to learn your all-time favourites, as in your favourite game mechanics, favourite rulebook, favourite artwork, favourite packaging, favourite coins, favourite minis, etc. I would also hope to learn what made each of these your favourite. You could even present your answers like an award show, i.e. Oscars. Well, thank you for this for the suggestion, Rich. Uh, we 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 don't really do favorites much, so no. so yeah. Sadly, you're out of luck fun. there. It, it sounds, sounds fun, fun but but we the our only concession to this sort of like um, you know award or whatever thing is we do a game of the year video each year yeah. at the end of the year. Uh, so you'll know what our favorite game of the year was that year. We also uh, did a few things at the beginning of the year of the year on Talk Cardboard, like our most anticipated games. Uh, so maybe expect a bit more of that, but not too much because we don't tend to lean into that sort of thing. We just like to review games. Our opinions change too much. Yes, we can't we can't set them in stone because then they're in stone and we can't change them, and that's inconvenient. Yeah, people will say, "But you said this was your favorite game." Uh, it's not anymore. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much for your comments and thank you for listening. And finally, Efka, what is on the bonus episode this week and what is the game of the episode? On the bonus episode, which you can get access to by becoming a No Pun Included patron on patreon.com slash no pun included, where you give us a bit of money each month and you help us keep going and get a bonus episode every time a main episode comes out of this Talk Cardboard podcast is Zuvardis, Savage Bowl, and Bonanza. Whoa, three games? Three games. It's always three games on the bonus, mostly. You know, it's sometimes just two. Three games this time. Yeah. A lot. It's nice. The game of the episode is um, Ready, Said, Bet. I think that's pretty much a given. We enjoyed that the most, didn't we? Mm-hmm. 
And with that, why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine.